0: I think what we need to recover in higher education and probably in the culture at large is a sense of grace, a sense of compassion an inclination to forgive.
1: Pano Canelos with us on Heterodox Out Loud. Today's episode is about a lone university president on a mission to restore civil discourse in higher education. I'm Zach Rausch. Stay with us. Our guest on the show is Pano Canelos, a renowned scholar and the former president of St. John's College. We'll hear about his journey into academia and his passion for debate and scholarly inquiry. We'll also learn about how the campus life he loved so deeply began changing for the worse. Stay tuned for a conversation about moral leadership, civil discourse, the future of the university, and a radical idea that may upend everything. Before our interview, Panos' blog, The Importance of Learning to Argue from Ancient Greece through the Present. The narrator is Jonathan Todd Ross.
2: Commentators from across the political spectrum decry the corrosion of conversation, the disintegration of dialogue, the barometric pressure of hostility that seems to rise ever more precipitously with each news cycle. We have lost, they declaim, the capacity for civil discourse. They are not wrong to do so. We have become a society hobbled by antipathy. We huddle like troops in trenches, eyeing one another circumspectly across a heavily mined no-man's land, knowing that to venture forth is to put oneself in peril, it is better to keep one's head down. Civility is indeed radically important. We need to be civil so that, in an immensely variegated society, we can live beside one another. But living beside one another is not the end of society. The end, the telos, of society is to flourish. Eudaimonia. A truce might allow us to live in proximity to one another. It will not allow us to thrive, however. In order to flourish, we must engage in truly civil discourse. We must learn to argue. Civil is from the Latin civilis, or citizen, which ultimately derives from civitas, the social body of citizens bound together by law and custom. It comes from the same root as civic and was understood in the ancient world to be coterminous with the city, or society that one belonged to. To discourse is to engage in conversation, to speak with one another. So to engage in civil discourse is to be part of a speaking city. In fact, in a democratically organized community, the city is both constituted and sustained by its speech. Civil discourse, however, is not polite conversation. It is the lifeblood of civil society. And like blood, if it is to sustain us, it must continue to flow, to circulate, and to remain warm. The model for the speaking city is Athens, the origin point of democratic governance. My family is Greek and I grew up in a vibrant Greek community. I can assure you that polite and restrained, even in this day, are not how I would characterize the conversation of Greeks. The conversation of the ancient Athenians was energetic, earnest, and never-ending. The agora, the marketplace, was abuzz with the exchange of ideas. In the courts, hundreds of citizens gathered to listen to the arguments made by opposing sides— with the responsibility of casting their own vote in legal cases. In symposia, drinking parties, Athenians spent long evenings debating fundamental human questions— justice, beauty, love. Even the theater was given over to probing inquiry, as characters and choruses debated the perpetual conundra of human existence. In Antigone, whether one should adhere to the law— over one's responsibilities to one's family. In the Oristia, how to resolve tension between vengeance and justice. In Oedipus the King, whether we have agency, and thus responsibility for our actions, or whether we are the playthings of fate. Overshadowing all this speech, all this debate, was a sense of urgency. There was so much at stake. Why? Why was the exchange of ideas, contending for this position or that, so important to the Athenians? Why was dialogue, often tense and challenging, so central to the flourishing of the city? Dialogue and Democracy The Greeks believed that to be human was to be imbued with logos. We are each possessed of reason. Their gods, capricious, willful, and selfish, did not give the Greeks the resources to sort things out. Rather, humans were vested with rationality. Logos is a complex term. It used to mean both reason and language. The two allied. They are inseparable. In fact, logos is the Greek word for word. We thus think in and through language. Each of us experiences the world through the long soliloquy unspooling in our minds. At this very moment, your present thoughts are shaped into words, which are in turn reflecting upon the words I am sharing with you. When you have the opportunity to respond, to share with me what is in your mind, we will be engaging in dialogue, or in Greek, dialogos. Daya meaning both to and through. Dialogue is the interchange of at least two people sharing their thoughts through speech. But in the exercise of dialogue, one plus one is much more than two. Our exchange of ideas through speech builds value exponentially. Each of us has a limited experience of the world. Each of us is gifted— with only a tiny sliver of all that is true. Moreover, we are prone to error, to mistaking what we think or hope to be true for truth itself. To share our thoughts is to check our opinions. And we learn not simply from our interlocutors, but from everyone that they have conversed with. Conversation, if it is open and attended by candor, creates a web of rationality that extends from person to person, generation to generation, linking organically the hard-earned wisdom of those who have come before us to those who currently alight upon this chaotic world. It is what frees us, as Hamlet put it, from being bound in the nutshell of our own ego. It is what shapes singular individuals into something called society. Moreover, the wisdom of the city, in aggregate, is a manifestation of human potential. We ought not to get our hopes up too much, however. There is still plenty of room for error, plenty of need for continual correction. We might be possessed of rationality, but we are also subject to other forces. In Plato's dialogue, the Phaedrus, The philosopher Socrates uses a provocative image to explain the human condition. Imagine a chariot pulled by two winged horses, he says, one white, one black, flying recklessly across the sky. The charioteer struggles desperately to control his steeds, one of which tries to pull the chariot up towards the sun, while the other attempts to drag it down toward the ground. In Socrates' account, this is an image of the human soul. The charioteer represents our powers of reason, attempting to guide us in the right direction. The light horse represents our desire for glory, for victory, the drive we have to elevate ourselves at the expense of others. The dark horse represents our baser instincts, our physical appetites, which are tethered to the material world. Allowing either horse to gain control would be disastrous, but it is indeed a struggle to rein in our passions. Society is that chariot writ large. If democracy is ruled by the people, then society, the aggregate of its citizens, is subject to the same features. The impulse to act rationally, the drive for glory, and the desire to fulfill our baser instincts— If we are to move ahead safely, reason must predominate. This was the mission of Socrates, to introduce into Athenian society dialogue and self-reflection. We think of Socrates as a philosopher, but he didn't write any books. He didn't teach at a university. Rather, he wandered about Athens in the Agora, in the courts, in Symposia, engaging its citizens in discourse— Socrates was a convener of conversations. Socrates believed that through dialogue we could test our opinions and hold one another and ourselves accountable. In this way we could maintain truth as our true north. Socrates recognized, however, that although language was the medium of rationality, it could also be employed for baser uses. There were in his day a group called sophists, who would hire themselves out to teach people how to use rhetoric to manipulate language not in the service of truth, but to achieve what they desired. Socrates confronted one of these sophists, Gorgias, and accused him of instructing his students how to make the worse argument appear the better. He chided the sophists for putting individual gain over the greater good. Today, although we aspire to be democratic, we no longer maintain common spaces for discussion. We no longer meet each other in the marketplace, in our civic institutions, even in our theaters, to discuss the most important human questions. We retreat into ever-narrowing silos, into echo chambers of the ego, Moreover, there are many Gorgias' today who use the overwhelming rhetorical power of technology, marketing, and media to make the worse argument appear the better. These sophists discard the pursuit of truth and empower both the light and dark horses of human nature, our desire for victory, and our wish to fulfill our appetites, advancing individual gratification over common interest and the truth. The Telos of the University We no longer have a Socrates to correct and instruct us, but we do have his model. What we call the Socratic method, discussing fundamental human questions in a reasoned and civilized manner, is still available to all. This method requires relentless inquiry, humility, and an unwavering commitment to Logos. Perhaps more than ever we have a need for education of a particular kind. An education that trains one in the habits of exchanging ideas, not a forum for the debate of settled opinions, where victory is the end, but an education that is the forge and working-house of thought itself. The ultimate goal of such an education, although it is conducted in a community, is self-reflection. The ability to look within and see when we believe something because it is true versus when we believe something because we want it to be true. St. John's College offers an exemplary Socratic education. We read books, very challenging books. We discuss ideas face-to-face, sitting around a table and do so fearlessly we interest ourselves in all areas of human knowledge philosophy the arts mathematics the sciences our purpose is to unsettle our opinion conversation derives from the latin conversari which means to take a turn to turn about our objective is to uncover and adhere to what is true we are governed by a document we call the polity We are a speaking city and thus committed to civil discourse. In this speaking city, we have two rules. First, that all opinions are heard, and second, that all opinions must be backed up by evidence. There are three elements that enable our conversation and that characterize civil discourse at St. John's. Intellectual humility, the recognition of the equal dignity of all around the table, and the passion for truth. Intellectual humility is the starting point of reasoned discourse. We are each on this planet for a brief time, making our way as best we can. Yet we are buffeted by fear, desire, will, circumstance, and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. The knowledge that we pick up along the way comes to us in teaspoonfuls, in fragments— It is necessary to hold opinions to make our way through life, but we ought to hold them gingerly. As we try to come to seek the truth about things in the company of others, it is imperative that we recognize that we are all fellow travelers. We are each equally dignified by our capacity for reason. Our dialogue must be attended by respect, patience, and fair-mindedness. From these will emerge trust, which will elevate our discourse. The passion for truth is, in the end, what must animate our project. Intellectual humility may nudge us away from ignorance, but truth must be our lodestar, that towards which we are drawn. In the pursuit of truth, we must be scrupulous, fearless, and persistent. In fact, the gap between ignorance and knowledge— Suspended between intellectual modesty and the hunger for truth is where we join our exemplar, Socrates. If we as a society are going to flourish and prosper, we must ensure that Logos remains ascendant. We must recommit to dialogue and conversation, not to be peaceable, but to be better, both as individuals and as a community. There is too much at stake to proceed in any other way.
1: Jonathan Todd Ross reading Pano Canelos' blog, The Importance of Learning to Argue from Ancient Greece Through the Present. Pano joins us now. Thank you so much for coming on to Heterodox Out Loud.
0: Oh, it's my great pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
1: So to get started, can you... For our listeners who don't know you, tell them a little bit about who you are and your background.
0: When I wrote the the blog that came out in 2019, I was president of a wonderful place called St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, which is a sort of storied, great books college. One of the most, I think, rigorous undergraduate educations in the country, if not the world, thoroughly dedicated to conversation, discussion, dialogue. So I learned a lot when I was there. I've now moved on to another institution, which we could talk about a little bit later. But my journey to St. John's was a zigzaggy one. I was brought up in an immigrant family, parents from Greece, first-generation American, and then a first-generation college student. So nobody in my family had ever been to college. So when I entered college, it was a uncharted territory for me. I really didn't know what to expect. And when I got there, I, I was just amazed that such places existed that that you could show up somewhere and people interesting people would be reading so many different things and there would be so many engaging discussions and that you know things can be provocative and energizing and that you know we carved a space for this kind of activity in, in our culture and our society and and i had the privilege to be there I and mean, it was sort of amazing to me and that was one of the greatest gifts i've ever received
1: your blog is really, it seems like it's kind of like a Paradise Lost story of you're telling this story here and something changed. So can you tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write this particular piece? And I think you've talked about this outside of here as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, the environment that I was privileged to experience as an undergraduate does feel a bit like Paradise Lost. It—it It is a couple decades since then that I've spent in higher education. Um, it feels like we have lost capacity for conversation or the will to have conversations, that civil discourse is something that is increasingly endangered. And yet civil discourse is really the heart of the academic enterprise. We often think of civil discourse as two people or more people speaking sort of politely to one another, especially to people that you disagree with being able to have conversations. But True civil discourse is something much more profound. Civil discourse is the conversation that we have that forms the foundation of our culture, society. Dialogue is an essential part of the academic experience because universities are the places where society does its thinking, where ideas are tested, where risks are taken, where things are proven or disproven. And these ideas, the ones that we cultivate, foster, develop in, you know, in these kind of hothouses of universities are the ideas that either propel society forward or move us in the other direction.
1: So for you, when did you start to notice that there was a lack of productive discourse happening on on campus?
0: I think for me, the Canary in the coal mine was um, when I started to notice students coming to me privately, both when I was a professor and then when I was a dean and a president who were sharing with me that they felt like they could not be themselves, that they couldn't speak up and openly. And, you know, these were students from all different sorts of political commitments, persuasions, students of faith, students who were secular. This kind of rising tide of anxiety that was coming up from the students when they feel like they have to kind of lock their authentic self in a kind of safe just to make their way through the institution. We have problems
1: one of the major reasons for students why they self-censored was their fear of being judged by their peers. And I'm curious if that was similar to what you've heard from the students who are coming to you, or if the source of their anxiety was from somewhere else.
0: It's certainly today, I think certainly the fear of being seen as offensive to one's peers is probably what dominates the anxiety of students. But I think it's more than that. They sort of felt kind of internal pressure from the institutions themselves, whether they were coming from professors or administrators And that. I think there's a kind of ambient pressure that's cultivated at universities that they feel it wells up in a kind of personal context more frequently, peer to peer. But I think students don't only locate that anxiety in that place.
1: What do you see as the most important steps that can be done for improving the state of discourse?
0: I think what we need to recover in higher education and probably in the culture at large is a sense of grace, a sense of compassion an inclination to, to forgive. You know, we're all human beings. We're all broken in various ways. It's better for us to try to mend one another than try to continue to bring one another down. You know, we have to model this as individuals, as leaders, as institutions and that. And I'll give a very simple, quick example. The last class I taught at St. John's, which occurred the, the fall after the summer of the unrest around the George Floyd murder, I decided imprudently that I was going to teach Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man I uh, hadn't read it since college, decades before, and I thought it, I remember it being very provocative and filled with ideas, but I had really forgotten how provocative this novel was, like how electric it is with things that are really transgressive today, not just about race, but about other issues. And so as I was rereading it, I'd committed to the class and I started rereading it and I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I done? You know, every, everybody's kind of a raw nerve ending now and, and I'm throwing this novel out there and it was the first time I was going to be teaching online and so I it was really kind of intimidated and scared that I had sort of got myself in a situation that was more than I would be able to handle and that things would come apart. And so the very first class, you know, I was looking across the Zoom screen, we had a dozen or so students there. I just let students know that. I said, you know, I'm kind of intimidated by this book and by the situation. I'm a little worried that I'm not going to be able to serve you or serve the moment. And so I said, there's, can we just agree to one simple rule? And that is that we will treat everybody with grace and forgiveness, because we're going to have conversations that will at some point cause distress, maybe offense. People will make missteps. And if we all go into this project knowing that we can trust that we'll be quicker to forgive and forget, than maybe we are in everyday life, maybe we can get somewhere. It was the best class I'd taught in years. Students Mm. all stepped up and it was tremendous. And I think by modeling a sense of vulnerability, even, you know, I was their college president, but modeling that I think is important because, I mean, damn it, I am vulnerable, just like everybody else. And I think trying to tuck that away somewhere is not helpful for anybody.
1: What a beautiful example. And so I think related to this is, can you speak as a university president of the role of leadership in shaping campus culture and these values?
0: Yeah, it's a, such a difficult time to be a college president. All the storms that we're facing in society seem to sort of collect around universities right now. And it takes a tremendous fortitude to weather those storms. I would say presidents need to do what leaders need to do is ignore the latest Twitter cycle. Ignore the frenzy of the moment and keep your eye on the important things, the longer term things, which are the integrity of the institution and the importance of the larger project of higher education. And that sometimes means saying no to people, donors with agendas, students or faculty who might feel that you're on the wrong side of an issue and want some kind of recourse. You know, you have to kind of keep the project as a whole as your North Star, even in these kind of, you know, tumultuous times, is continuing to go in the direction that higher education should be going in.
1: You're going to be leaving St. John's at the end of the year, correct? I actually have already left St. John's.
0: My last day was this past June 30th, and I have um, embarked upon a new project, which I'll, I'll share with you here. I am president of a new university that's being founded in Austin, Texas, called the University of Austin, that is being founded upon the principles of open inquiry and civil discourse. Those are the foundational principles of the institution. I was, I'm joined in this by a group of founders that include the historian Neil Ferguson, the journalist Barry Weiss, the entrepreneur Joe Lonsdale, and evolutionary biologist Heather Hang. And we have a whole further circle of people around us that are supporting us, public intellectuals, academics, folks supporting resources. And we intend to get this new institution up and running and doing things within a year and hopefully granting degrees within a few years.
1: So if listeners wanted to learn more about this new university, do you have any, a guide for them where to go?
0: Our website is uAustin.org.
1: Pano Canelos on Heterodox Out Loud. Stay up to date with Heterodox Academy's many offerings, essays, resources, research, and events. You can find them all at heterodoxacademy.org. Before you go, remember to subscribe and download us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Davies Content produced this show. I'm Zach Rauch. Take care.